We're going to be in Psalm 13 tonight, so if you want to go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 13, that's where we'll be camping out from. As you turn to Psalm 13, I want to tell you all about my friends, the Musimis. So whenever I lived up in Washington, D.C., I worked and studied with a guy by the name of John Musimi. John was a pastor, or is a pastor, from Nairobi, Kenya, and we were studying together in the United States for a time. One of John's greatest strengths, in my opinion, was his wife, Maureen. I'm sure any of you men out there could attest to that to your lovely wives if you're married. And they had four children, Taji, Tia, Tommy, and Tondo. Taji was four years old, Tia and Tommy were twins that were three years old, and Tondo was one year old. That's right, four kids under the age of four. Now, if you've ever been to D.C., you know that lots of the houses are built in these townhomes, these tall townhomes that sit right next to each other. And a lot of these townhomes also have kind of a basement unit underneath them. Sometimes the families use those, but oftentimes you'll see, because rent is so expensive in D.C., that they'll rent out these basement units to other people. And so I lived in the basement unit of the townhome that the Musimis lived in. Now, if you remember, I said I lived in the basement underneath four kids under the age of four. And so like the constant pitter-patter of rain on a window, these kids were always jumping up and down on the house. But in many ways, this was a gift of grace from God because it reminded me to, instead of just hanging out in my basement by myself, to go ahead and go upstairs, knock on the door, and hang out with these kids. And remember, I talked about John's lovely wife, Maureen. Maureen and I struck up a deal. She said, hey, I'll cook food for you if you take care of my children. I was like, all right, as a bachelor, this seems like a good deal. I get to hang out with these kids, and this woman's lovely cooking could be mine. Fantastic. So I just played the part of being a human jungle gym, and then I would get fed, and my belly would be full. I had a wonderful time with the Musimis whenever I lived up in D.C., and I was actually the one who got to take them to the airport in mid-December of this last year whenever they were flying back to Nairobi. But little did I know that that would be the last time I would ever see Maureen. She passed away two months later. Suddenly. It was shocking news. In a post on social media, John wrote, it pleased the Lord to call my dear wife to himself today. We're devastated. Pray for us. A husband in his early 30s had lost his beloved bride. Four kids under the age of four had lost their mother. You wonder, what words do you have in a time of tragedy like this? What could you possibly say? At the memorial service, John gave a few words reflecting on Maureen's passing. He said, The hand of the Lord has been heavy upon me. In taking her from me, God has led me to great darkness. He has turned his hand against me. He has besieged me and surrounded me with anguish and distress. God has bound me with heavy chains. And though I cried out to God to heal my wife, he shut out my prayers. 
God drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He has made me to chew on gravel. I remember listening to these words as I watched the live stream of the memorial service and thought, gosh, that's such brutal honesty. When you think, has God abandoned me, what words do you say? I think these words of John capture well what he was feeling. John was using the biblical language of lament to express his grief before the Lord so that ultimately it would lead him to trust and as we'll come to see, it would lead him to worship God. It doesn't take much to look around and to notice that things in this world are not as they should be. In your own life, you or someone you know has probably experienced some type of suffering. Whether it's minimal or whether it's pretty extensive suffering, I'm not naive enough to know that in this broken world, all of us have come into contact with some type of suffering. And it's maybe you've even been to the extent that you've wondered, has God abandoned me? Is God still on the throne? And if so, why would he allow this to happen? How could a young woman in her early 30s lose her life and leave behind four young kids and her husband? Whether it's cancer, miscarriage or infertility, marital strife, addiction, loss of a child, debilitating depression. Maybe you sense your body is failing before your very eyes. For me, it was an unexpected bout of depression in college that cast a dark cloud over my life and made me feeling like there was no hope. It made me wonder, where are you, God? This type of pain draws us to our knees and it also confronts us with great confusion, particularly for the Christian. I think this feeling of being abandoned by God is far more common among Christians than we lead ourselves to believe. The philosopher Voltaire once said, I am abandoned by both God and man. We're not surprised when we hear someone like Voltaire, a non-Christian, say words like these, but what about a Christian? My suspicion is that Christians have been trained to silence their complaints, to silence their confusion to the Lord, because they fear that their friends will assume that they've lost the faith or that they don't actually believe in God anymore. I wonder if you've believed that. As Christians, we are those who are to live victoriously, right? How could a Christian claim to feel abandoned by God? Isn't that the main reason that you don't turn to God in your honest complaints? when life doesn't go your way? How relieving is it then to discover that King David, God's anointed one, the one who is a man after God's own heart, complains in this way before God, as we'll see in our psalm, Psalm 13, this morning. So find your place there in Psalm 13, and let's read David, David's words as he expresses his own feelings. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? <clears throat> 
How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help this evening. God, illuminate our hearts and our minds by the truths that are contained in your word and help us know how we might cry out to you in our grief so that it turns us to joy-filled worship. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this text, I think we can see that the main idea is that if you belong to God, your cries of desperation will turn to songs of delight. If you belong to God, your cries of desperation will pave way to songs of delight. Our text is going to be split into three points this evening. First, we'll see David's cries in verses 1 and 2. We'll see David's requests in verses 3 and 4. And then we'll see David's trust in verses 5 and 6. This psalm, if you haven't picked up on it, is what is called a lament psalm. We'll unpack what that means more in just a minute, but we see that David goes from pointed questions to God to songs of worship before God. David shows us how to lament in this way. And crucially, from our structure, you'll see in the middle section, verses 3 and 4, that David prays. It's this petition to God that is the hinge point of this psalm. So David cries out in his complaint, in his grief, in his desperation before the Lord in verses 1 and 2, and then it's that prayer that ultimately paves way to his delight. Painfully honest prayers will always lead to trust in God. I fear that the biblical language of lament has been lost in our day and age, as I've talked about. Too often we are told to simply look at the bright side. Don't engage with your grief, just look at the bright side. Or at least your suffering isn't as bad as that person's suffering. Though positivity is good, I think we do a disservice to God's word and to suffering brothers and sisters in the faith when we fail to speak the biblical language of lament. The Old Testament is ripe with language of lament. Think about the book of Lamentations. A third of the Psalms are written as Psalms of lament. You get that? Over the 150 psalms, a third of them are written as individual or corporate laments. This is an intensely biblical language. They express our grief and despair before the Lord because we do live life in a fallen world. The Israelites, I think, would be puzzled if they could look through a time, time machine telescope and see our culture today. They would think our forms of grief and mourning are so sedated Think about it. We change the names of funerals to celebrations of life because we're scared to talk about death. We don't like to think about death. We don't like to press in to our grief. But this psalm teaches us to do the opposite. Grief is a part of life, and we cannot shortchange it. 
but God, by God's kind, kindness and His grace to us, He's given us a language to speak that grief, to speak that lament. And so that's where we start in verses 1 and 2, David's cries. I wonder, have you ever found yourself wondering that same question, how long, O oh Lord? David says it four times in this psalm so as to sound out loudly for all the suffering saints. How long, O oh Lord? How could you take them from me? How could you give me this diagnosis? We don't know the exact circumstance that led David to pray in this way, but it's clear from the psalm that he is on the verge of despair. Like a kid separated from her mother in the grocery store, David wonders, where are you, God? Like being on hold with the customer service rep, David feels like no one can hear him. Like someone sitting in a sterile room on a cold examination bed and hearing the words, I'm sorry, but the baby doesn't have a heartbeat. David feels like the Lord has turned his face against him. Like the teenager crying alone in her room because the boys at school made fun of her. David feels like the enemy has exalted over him and that sorrow is in his heart all the day long. Don't you see how honest and painful David's questions are? Do you feel like they have the smell of irreverence on them? We think, who is David to question God like this? Who is anyone to question God like this? God is sovereign, so I'll just put a smile on my face. Friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us to cry out in our grief, in our confusion, in our despair to the Lord. And in fact, that David is not silent in his suffering indicates his very belief in the unchanging character of God. To lament is to break the silence with expression of your pain. Despair tells you to keep quiet, that all hope is lost, that you need to give up. But lament teaches us to break that silence, even if it's messy. Rather than looking down to ourselves or around to our circumstances, lament teaches us to look up to God. Don't feel the need to have it all together when you come to God. Satan wants you to be silent in your grief and in your frustration, in your confusion. The last thing that he wants is for you to turn to God and to express your pain to him because he knows that God is in control. God wants you to painfully and honestly bring your pain to him. It is, very, it is the very belief in God's resolute character that I think can often make our suffering so confusing. It's only when you believe that God is sovereign, that he's in control of all things, that God loves you, that God cares for you more than anything else, that difficulty doesn't make any sense for the Christian. And David's questions reflect that belief. If we think that God is in control and we receive news that isn't good, or we're suffering for years with something and we wonder, God, why is this happening? If you think about it, we know that God is sovereign by even articulating that pain because we wonder, God, you are good. God, you are in control. God, you could change this if you wanted to, and yet I feel this way. Why don't you take this away? So there's a, there's a bit of confusion and tension there, but even expressing that pain 
solidifies your belief that God is sovereign. Honestly, praying in this way, David and ourselves, if we pray in this way, demonstrates that it's possible to have incredibly difficult emotions that are not based on objective truth and yet nonetheless feel true. We know from the rest of Psalm 13 that David doesn't actually believe that God has abandoned him nor forgotten him, but he is experiencing such grief and despair that it certainly feels like it to him. And that's why we wonder. There are times when Christians can feel that they've been abandoned by God. I remember hearing a pastor tell a story one time of sitting in the parking lot with his wife after she had miscarried for the second time. They were sitting in silence in their car, and his wife cried out in prayer, God, I know that you're not mean, but it sure feels like it right now. She was lamenting. She knows that God is not mean, but she expresses that feeling is nonetheless true because the circumstances make it feel that way. Even as David says in verse 1, he wonders if the Lord will forget him forever. Doesn't suffering feel that way sometimes? It feels like it lasts forever. And that's how David feels right now. He wonders, Lord, are you going to forget me forever? I'm here. Intervene. If we have an end in sight, we can manage, but it's when the pain feels like it will last forever that we begin to despair. And that's what leads us to wonder, what will we do with that despair? If we follow David's example from the Scriptures, then we will turn to God and cry out with our lament. Lament speaks into all of life. I've mentioned a few different ways and a few different types of suffering, but maybe you wear loneliness like a dark cloud that shuts out all other light. Maybe you suffer with an ailing or aging body that leads to discouragement that's so acute that you feel like you're sinking into despair like a rock in the ocean. Maybe you have an unfair supervisor at work or you got passed up for a promotion by someone who is less qualified than you. Maybe you're experiencing disappointment in your marriage. The youthful days of the honeymoon pleasure have turned to personality differences. You're no longer satisfied. It feels like there's constantly conflict. They're not giving you what you want or what you think you need. Maybe you're experiencing the pain of infertility, like the sting of alcohol on a fresh wound. Maybe you have a wayward child that you desperately want to return to the Lord. Or maybe you have a chronic sickness that will not leave you, or as no other parent should have to deal with. Maybe you've lost a child to death. To live life in a fallen world is to experience pain and sorrow. These cries of grief beckon your lament. Will you silence them like an unknown caller? Or will you pick it up and cry out to the Lord with your confusion and your frustration? How long, O Lord? I also want to say this evening that lament is not just for severe sufferers. Lament can be used to express our grief to the Lord in your ordinary suffering. Maybe you have a child who doesn't sleep through the night and you're at your end. As a young single guy, I can't say that I've experienced this, but I've heard that it can be awful. You wonder, God, I'm tired. 
Why can't you just make that baby sleep so that I can get some rest? If only I could get some rest, I wouldn't be so snappy. But God, I know that your mercies are new each morning, so I will wake up tomorrow morning knowing that you will supply my needs. I think that's a good limit to pray. Maybe you desperately long to grow in God's grace, but you keep returning to the same sin over and over. Take that complaint to the Lord. Maybe you battle fatigue on a daily basis and you wish that you could just live life like normal, like everyone else. Take that complaint to the Lord. Before we move to our next section in David's request, I want to say one more thing. We need to look at the posture of David's questions and complaints. We've spent lots of time reflecting on the necessity of bringing our complaints to God, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say that these complaints are expressed from a heart of humility and pain rather than pride and presumption. There's a huge difference between coming before the God and accusing Him of things that are not true of His character and coming to God in your pain and saying, God, this is how I feel. We are never right to be angry with God. And though we should take advantage of the language of lament, we must never come before the Lord with demanding questions or in a way that assumes that we know what's best. We must simply come in all of our pain, our grief, and honestly and humbly express our pain before the Lord. Let's consider now David's request in verses 3 and 4. This is the second stage of lament where David, in his pain, has turned to God. He's not silent in his pain. He speaks out and looks to God. He expresses his complaint, and then now he petitions the Lord to act. This is the next movement of lament. As one writer put it, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. David is in a desperate state. By asking God to light up his eyes lest he sleep the sleep of death, David is essentially saying that unless God intervenes, he feels as though he will die. His cries of complaint have turned to desperate pleas for salvation. But we see that writers of lament always stake their claim on what God has promised to do and what God is capable of doing. David asked the Lord to light up his eyes because he knows that it is only the Lord who is able to sustain him. If David didn't believe that the Lord could meet his demands, then his crying out is in vain. But David does the opposite precisely because he knows the Lord is capable of acting. He knows that the Lord is sovereign. I think on the flip side of this, we can dangerously forget about God's sovereignty when everything is going our way. Maybe you think, huh, I don't know what you're talking about tonight, Jeremy. Life's pretty good for me. This lament thing, man, I don't have to worry about that. Sometimes we think that just because we're financially stable, just because our family is in good shape, we have good health, work is going well, we get to have time for leisure, let me just slide into cruise control. But if you, by God's grace, are living that type of life right now, I wonder, do you regularly take time every day to be on your knees to give God thanks for the grace that He's given you in your life, knowing that other people experience 
different types of suffering? Do you regularly each day ask God to give you wisdom about how you might leverage the gifts of your good graces for the benefit of others? Do you trust God's sovereignty enough so that when that time of suffering comes, you aren't threatened by it in the least? David's requests in suffering before the Lord are a means of submitting his creature status before the Creator. He's saying, God, I don't understand, but I know what you're capable of doing. You are the Creator, so I ask you, plead with you to act. But even those who are not suffering must remember that they too are creatures and everything they have belongs to God and has been given to them by God. And so they must return that to God in the way that they trust Him. The crucible of suffering will reveal where you lay your trust. We know that God is always with us even to the end of the age, as Matthew 28 says, but do you really believe that? Or do you sometimes try to take matters into your own hands? This leads us to the final stage of lament. Trust. Will you trust? So again, we see this progression. David, in his despair, if you've read any of the accounts of King David from First and Second Samuel or from some of his other psalms, you know that this man was constantly experiencing conflict. There were so many people trying to take his life. King Saul was after him for many, many years. And oftentimes this led him to the brink of despair. In fact, like I said, we don't know exactly what this psalm is relating in David's life, but it could have been this circumstance where he feels the weight of all these people pressing in on him so that he feels like there's no escape, so that he feels as though he's about to die. But he doesn't remain silent in that grief. He doesn't turn away from God. He turns to God. He expresses that complaint and that grief. He petitions the Lord to act. And then ultimately, what does that lead to? It leads to trust. You ever think about how we look at this psalm and we start, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then by verse 5, he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. In verse 6, he's singing. How does that happen? Lament always finds its destination in trust. We must be able to say, I don't know what you're doing, God, but I trust you and I will wait on you. This is what makes lament unique. And this is what differentiates lament from simply grief. As we said earlier, to cry is human, but to lament is something that is uniquely Christian. To explain the difference between lament and grief, take a trip back with me to fifth grade. Anybody remember the differences between independent clauses and dependent clauses? Grief is kind of like a dependent clause. It cannot stand on its own. Dependent clauses, they may have a subject and a verb, but they fail to express a complete thought. So they're considered a sentence fragment. Bet y'all didn't know you were going to learn that tonight. They are dependent on something else to make them complete. And grief is the same way. It cannot stand fully on its own. It may try, but it will be lacking. 
it needs an outlet through which it can be fully expressed. The language of lament was given to us by God to complete that dependent clause of grief. It makes the subject and the verb of grief able to stand. If you dam up grief with silence for too long, it will threaten the integrity of your well-being. But lament is added as a means of God's grace, as kind of like a release valve to allow that grief to flow out so that God's grace can flow freely in. We need lament in order to lead us to God's grace. Again, lament is a prayer of pain, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Like a bridge spanning a roaring river, lament is the pathway by which we can traverse the torment of life's suffering. It is a divine means of grace given to Christians as a balm to soothe their grief. It is an escalator that carries them to the throne room of God's grace where they can petition God to act. It is a megaphone by which they can shout their trust to God. Lament is a way to turn our desperation, just as David was in that desperate state, into delight. Though we don't have all the pieces of the puzzle, we trust in God because He is sovereign over all. We are able to believe that He is doing something far better than we could ever ask, than we could imagine, or that we could think. We were reflecting in our life class this morning a little bit on the life of Joseph. If you remember the story of Joseph with the robe of many colors, we see that Joseph, the youngest the youngest of the 12 sons is thrown into a pit, left for dead, and then sold in to slavery. He goes to Egypt. He stays there for a while. He spends time in the king's palace. He spends time in the pit of the prison. He goes through all of the suffering and grief that you could imagine from life, being completely separated and cut off from his family, being left for dead. And at the end of Genesis, when Joseph is reunited with his brothers— and he, they're confronting uh, Joseph, and they're wondering whether he's going to forgive them or not. You remember what Joseph says? What you meant for evil, God intended for good. Objectively looking at the circumstances of Joseph's life would lead us to believe that God is not good, that God is not in control, that God doesn't care about Joseph, that God has completely abandoned Joseph. And yet we see with time that God has been in control the whole time and that he has used this as a means to preserve the people of Israel from the famine. God is in control. And David expresses this belief too. Look again at verses 5 and 6. David writes, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. But don't miss this. It is not David's faith that pulls him up. It is the object of his faith that pulls him up. That Hebrew word there for steadfast love, it doesn't mean the warm and fuzzies. 
It is a covenant love. It is the covenant love of God. It is the until death do us part type of love. But it's even better than that because it's God's covenant love. It is his unrelenting, unbreakable, never-ending love that David believes in. And it is this belief that allows David to trust in God. Now we know this isn't just a simple formula. It's not just, hey, turn to God, complain, ask Him to act, and then magically peace is going to enter your soul and calm all your griefs. Now that's why lament is an ongoing language, but it also means that we sometimes have to choose to trust God based on what we know to be true rather than what feels to be true. David in this psalm is kind of like a lawyer interrogating a witness. He's demanding answers of God, but as we see from verses 5 and 6, God's strategy in allowing David to go through these stages, to experience the pain, to experience God's silence, leads him to cry out to God, it leads him to petition God, and then ultimately leads him to trust God. And so God's plan in this works. It leads David to know and trust God even more. Have you ever considered that your own suffering might be a means through which God is calling you to know more of Him and to trust Him more fully? Don't you see how remarkable the shift is? As we said earlier, David has gone from desperate cries of anguish, saying, How long, O Lord? to songs of rejoicing. This is what lament does. It turns our disheveled gaze to hopeful longing. It turns our cries of desperation into songs of delight. But if you're not in Christ, I wonder where you look when the storms of life send you crashing against the rocky banks of grief. When all hope seems gone and your tears become your food day and night, where will you take counsel? It is only David's belief in the steadfast love of God that he is able to trust. And if you're not sure whether you belong to God or not, don't wait until those storm surges of life overtake you to find out. The Bible teaches that every person is sinful. Each of us has turned away from God in our own will and have committed offenses against God. We have chosen to submit ourselves as the creatures above the Creator. And because of that sin, we are separated from God because He is holy. And God's holiness, it cannot be reconciled with our sin. And so there's this vast chasm between God and man. But thanks be to God, because this steadfast love that David believes in and that God has set upon us came in the person of Jesus Christ. God sent his own son into the world to live an entirely perfect life. He was free from all sin, and yet he endured all the sufferings and the temptations that we experience He was just as we are, yet without sin. And then he willingly gave of himself to die on a cross for our sins. 
the penalty for our sins is that we will forever be separated from God. What we have earned for our sin is that we will be eternally separated from God. But through Jesus' perfect life, he obtained righteousness before God. And in giving himself up on the cross, he renders that righteousness to everybody who believes in faith in him. And so if you turn from your sins, if you say, God, I am a sinner. Woe is me. Have mercy on me. I want to be united in relationship with you. The sting of life's suffering is more than I can handle. I relent. I turn from these sins and I trust in the perfect work of your son Jesus on my behalf. And because he rose from the grave, death could no longer hold him. And so that death, as we sang in that song, Man of Sorrows, that death that held us, it no longer has power over us. We are free in Christ. But you have to turn from your sins. You have to say, God, I am a sinner, and it is only what you have done for me that I can be saved. And if you do that, you can be saved. And that chasm that divided you from God is now bridged through Christ's blood, and you can have life everlasting. So you will dwell eternally with God, and in this life, when you experience the sting of suffering, when you inevitably run into grief, you'll be able to look at the man of sorrows who stood in our place, condemned under the weight of our sin, so that we could be saved. But it's only if you trust in him that you can have that trust. I hope that you're able to see what is utterly unique about lament and why it's a biblical language that we need to recover. It is truly a means of grace that God has given to us to express our grief, our frustration, our suffering, and more so that ultimately we can turn to deeper trust in God. When we speak about means of grace, I simply mean something that God has given to us in his kindness as a means of picking us up, as a means of making us to know him more, as a means of trusting him more. So we know as Christians that we read God's word. We consider that reading God's word is a means of grace. We consider that gathering as we're doing now, as the body of Christ, is a means of grace that God has given to encourage us, to build us up in the faith. We consider that prayer is a means of grace in which we unite with God. We bring our requests to Him. But we also need to see that lament. We didn't create this language. This is a biblical language that God has given to us. And it is an untapped reservoir of God's grace waiting to pour out onto your life in your suffering. Martha Snell was a bedridden invalid who suffered from four incurable diseases. She was completely dependent upon her husband for all of her life. And then her husband unexpectedly passed away, leaving her on her own. Others came to care for her, but in this suffering, she became an amazing poet. One poem she wrote was titled The Thorn. In this poem she says, In all my suffering I have learned that God never gives a thorn without this added grace. 
He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil that hides his face. Gosh, what words. That she has such resolute character to recognize that the thorn that God has given her in her life is actually a means that has pinned aside the veil so that she sees more of God, so that she experiences more of his grace. Gosh, I pray to have that type of faith. How could seemingly unbearable suffering be redemptive for Martha? It's because she knew that her greatest need and that her greatest good is that Christ is magnified in her life and that she sees and knows more of the character of God. And this is ultimately how lament functions. It is a means by which we fall to our knees and desperately cry out to God and trust that in His grace He will look upon us that he will show us more of himself. And even if the circumstance isn't alleviated, even if it doesn't lift, that we'll be able to pray like Martha does. That we'll be able to trust God in this way. My hope in reflecting on this psalm is that you'll practice the grace of lament in your own life. And if by God's grace you're free from suffering at this moment, that you'll practice it with others who are suffering. Remember those four steps. Turn to God. Bring your complaint to Him. Petition Him. And then trust Him. That's the progression of lament. And you can do that in your own life. You can even use this psalm, as we've walked through it, as a guide to help you. And though Psalm 13 is an account of individual lament, I want us to consider how we might be able to use this language really quickly with others. If you've ever had a friend or a family member experience great suffering, you know that it can be difficult to find the right words to say. Being with someone in their grief is kind of like walking on eggshells. You wonder, am I going to say the wrong thing? Oh, I probably will, so I'm just not going to say anything at all. And that's a hard place to be in. What if instead you prayed this psalm with them? What better way to pray than to use God's Word? You can pray, how long, O Lord? Will you forget my friend forever? How long are you going to hide your face from her? How long must she take counsel in her own soul and have sorrow in her heart all the day? How long will this suffering be exalted over her? Consider and answer us, O God. Light up her eyes, lest she sleep in sorrow day after day, lest this suffering seem to prevail over her. But Lord, ultimately we trust in you because in your steadfast love, you hold us. Oh God, we will rejoice because you alone give salvation. We will sing to you, Lord, because you deal bountifully with us. If you have a friend who's suffering, take this psalm and pray that with them. I think God will uni uniquely use it as a means to encourage them and to even unite you in deeper relationship with them. Another practical application is to simply start reading more of the Psalms of Lament. You can start with this Psalm, Psalm 13, but some of the other Psalms of Lament that you might want to start in are Psalm 10. Psalms 42 and 43 are kind of grouped together. Those are some great Psalms of Lament to read. Psalm 77. Read and reflect on these Psalms, and then see if in your, on your own you can determine those different points of lament 
They're crying out with their complaint to God. They're petitioning God, and then they're turning and trusting Him. It doesn't always follow this exact same structure as we see in Psalm 13, but they do have all of these elements. And again, that's what makes lament unique as Christians. Imagine that there is someone who knows you better than you know yourself. They know how what makes you happy. They know what makes you sad. They know exactly what you need and are capable of giving you what you need, even when you don't know you need it. Friends, we don't have to imagine. That's God. Through Christ, you have a direct line to the Creator, the sovereign King of the universe. How could we be silent? As Jesus says in Luke 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will instead give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give to those who ask of him? Lament is a gift of grace for individuals and for groups of people. Let's take advantage of it. No longer do we have to bottle up our grief. No longer do we have to bottle up our sorrow. If you feel like you've been abandoned by God, whether now or sometime in the future, you don't have to be silent about that. You can take that to God and trust that if you are in Christ, it will lead you to trust in Him. After my friend John Musimi expressed his lament to the Lord, the words I read earlier, he closed with these words. I know that while my wife is absent in body, she is present with the Lord. I know that my wife belonged to the Lord before she ever belonged to me. In order to love someone, I must want what's best for them. And I don't know anything better for my wife than that she has God right now. She is looking in his face and seeing only absolute love and acceptance from him. She knows now only glory and joy. Her faith has been turned to sight. I kiss the rod that smites me because it is the Lord who gives and takes away. Blessed be the Lord. John's cries of desperation paved way to trust and delight in the sovereign Lord. If you're feeling like you've been abandoned by God or that you're confused by your circumstances, use this language. Though I don't know when your feelings of despair will lift, I do know one thing. He who promised is faithful. And as we know from Revelation, he is coming soon. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that when our hearts are filled with despair, that we will not remain silent. Give us the strength and the grace to practice lament. Help us to persevere to the end in our suffering, oh God. Help us, we pray. Amen.